Okay, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up with me to John chapter 18. If you need a Bible, you didn't bring one this morning, uh, or you don't have one, we have these black Bibles over here on, on the tables on the sides of the room there, and you're welcome to take one of those and keep that. Um, if you have one of those, uh, we're going to be on page 960. John chapter 18, page 960 in those black Bibles. We're going to look at the first 27 verses of John 18 this morning. Okay, we spent the last several chapters listening to Jesus teach his disciples in preparation for uh, his departure back to the Father. If, you've, if you're new with us, we've been going through the Gospel of John uh, 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 chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we've spent these, these last chapters since chapter 13 sort of in this upper room with, with Jesus and the disciples and this concentrated time of teaching and preparation because he's leaving. He's going back to the Father. And they're distraught because they're, they thought he was staying. And they don't know why he's leaving yet. They don't fully understand that. And now Jesus is going to show his disciples why he actually came. We're moving into these final chapters of John's gospel, and we're going to get into uh, the pace is going to quicken. We're going to get into the action here and, and the real reason why Jesus came, the real reason why John wrote his gospel the thing that we all need to see and understand. And these first 27 verses in John chapter 18 are going to show us why we all need a Savior and why that Savior has to be Jesus Christ. And it can be no other. So because this is God's word and, uh, and, and um, I want to handle it correctly, I want to pray. And then we'll dig into the, to the sermon. Lord, we love you. We're thankful for your word. We're thankful for your son, we're thankful for your spirit, and we're thankful for your church, and we pray that this morning you would proclaim your word through my mouth and the power of your spirit to your church, that we might grow in deeper awe of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and that we might grow uh, in deeper unity with him as those he has reconciled to you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So this past weekend, Thursday and Friday, we have, my family has been over, uh, spent a lot of time in Peoria. My daughter was in a musical adaptation of The Pilgrim's Progress. If you're familiar with that story, um, it, it's a book, it's a very, very uh, uh, popular book, a, a well-known book, but if you're familiar with that story, it tells about the main character named Christian. It tells about Christian's journey from the city of destruction to the cross and then to the city of, or, or the celestial city. And it serves, uh, this is what's so beautiful about this. It's not just a story. It serves as this allegory of, uh, of the spiritual journey that every believer, every Christian is on in this earthly life. And in this story, Christian is constantly reminded to stay on the path. And in this story... Christian constantly wanders away from the path. You find yourself, as you, as you watch Christian wander, you find yourself going, never going to make it. He's never going to make it. And yet in the background always is the king himself reminding Christian, I am always with you. Ask me for help. I'm here. I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Christian is constantly forgetting that the king is always with him. Every failure that Christian has seems like it's going to thwart the king's efforts even to bring him safely to the celestial city. One line in the musical this weekend that really struck me 
Um, and by the way, when I said earlier that the, my kids are teaching me the gospel, this is high school. This was a high school uh, uh, musical, and these kids are declaring these glorious and eternal truths of the gospel to everyone sitting there. And my own heart was both convicted and, and encouraged uh, by the realities that they were singing about. And one line in particular really struck me. After yet another blunder, Christian is, is sitting there hunched over, and, and, um, and the king comes up and says, if you really knew how much I loved you, you would never doubt or be afraid at all. If you really knew how much I loved you, you would never doubt or be afraid at all. And, and I'm immediately convicted by that. I'm immediately convicted because I'm afraid and I doubt. And yet I'm also incredibly encouraged by that because the king is not saying that in condemnation. The king is saying that to remind Christian, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And I intend to show you exactly how great my love is for you. I intend to show you that. See, the reality is that we are all prone to wander off the path, right? Because we don't fully grasp how deeply the king actually loves us. And it's easy for us to feel like our, our failures keep Jesus from getting us to our final home, to the celestial city. And that's why we all need this reminder that John is going to give us in this passage today. And here's, here's what we're going to find out, the main point of, 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 of the passage, the main point of the message. Take hope in this. There is no sin that can thwart God's plan of redemption because he sent his sinless son to redeem sinners. There is no sin that can thwart God's plan of redemption because he sent his sinless son to redeem sinners. So let's jump in. John chapter 18, start the first three verses. After Jesus had said these things, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. And he and his disciples went to it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. And so Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Teaching time is over, right? They're, they're not in the upper room anymore. It was time to set things in motion that Jesus had been telling his disciples about. He's been saying the time has come, the time has come, the time has come all throughout these last few chapters, and now the time really has come. They have gone out across the, the Kidron Valley, just to the east of Jerusalem, into the Mount of Olives, and now they're headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is a familiar place to Judas because Jesus had taken all of his disciples there many, many times. You see, betrayal comes most often from those that are close to us. Judas was familiar with the place because he was close to Jesus. But we need to understand something. Judas was not just betraying his rabbi here. Yeah, he was betraying his rabbi, but he wasn't just betraying his rabbi. He was betraying his creator. If we go all the way back to the beginning of John's gospel, he started the gospel by saying that all things were created through Christ and apart from Christ, not one thing that has been created was created. That includes Judas. He's a creation. A human being made in God's image. 
and distorted by his own sin and corruption. When we think of it in these terms, we're reminded then that Judas was not actually the first one to betray his creator. I was helped by one pastor's observation that that this is not the first betrayal that took place in a garden. The devil may have put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, as John told us in chapter 13, but Judas's heart was already corrupted by sin because of that first betrayal that took place not in this garden, but in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve chose their own way instead of trusting in God's way. And with their rebellion came the sinful fall of all of humanity, including Judas, including you, including me. See, all of us were born with hearts that want to do what we want instead of what God wants. In the, in the, in the play, The Pilgrim's Progress, one of the lines was, um, I want to be king. That's it. We want to be king. Our hearts are ready to betray our creator at the very first opportunity we have. You know this, if you're a parent, you don't have to teach your child to rebel, Right? And our own, our, our own sinful rebellion against God then leaves all of us condemned to punishment under his good and righteous wrath. We say that word wrath, and, and, it, and it's terrifying, right? It feels evil. It feels wrong. But wrath from God is good, and it's necessary. If he's going to be a just and holy God, he has to punish sin, And the way you punish sin is with righteous wrath. And that wrath is what we have all been condemned to receive. It's tempting to read this and to be glad that we are not like Judas, right? In a good story, there's always a villain that everybody loves to hate. It's really easy for us to hate Judas here, throw him under the bus. But when we think about the story, the grand story of redemption that God has told it's very clear that we are all the bad guy. We've all sinned against our creator. We've all turned against him. We've all betrayed the one who made us, and we've all gone our own way. That's why Jesus didn't just come and say, hey, let's just hang out here in the upper room. Let's hide here with his disciples. No, the creator who was betrayed in the first garden actually came to be betrayed in the second garden. He's the one that came out. He went out with his disciples to this garden in order to be betrayed again. Why in the world would he subject himself to that? We'll discuss that more in a minute, but first let's, let's finish getting the picture of this scene here, right? Now, it was late at night by then. They came with lanterns and torches. You don't need those in the daytime. Jesus has been talking with his disciples long into the night, and night is a, a fitting time for betrayal to take place to use John's language from his gospel again, because people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that their deeds may not be exposed. See, the darkness of night provided the perfect cover for Judas to carry out this evil betrayal, his evil deeds. And the garden was a perfect place to do it. It was away from the city far enough that it was away from the, the crowds of people who, uh, uh, who were were impressed with Jesus. And it was most likely walled in, which would have allowed the mob that Judas took with him to corner Jesus and prevent him from escaping, right? Wait till he gets in the garden, boys. 
and then we can block the entrance. Now, the soldiers were Roman. The officials were temple police officers. And one commentary noted that the combination here of the Jewish and Roman authorities in, in this arrest, again, indicts the whole world. We just saw that Paul did that in, in Ephesians 2 during our prayer time, right? Everybody's guilty. Everybody. Everyone is guilty of injustice against Jesus Christ. But the Father, John tells us again in chapter 3, loved the world in this way. That he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, whether Jew or Gentile, will not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus didn't come out of hiding in the upper room. He wasn't hiding there in the first place just simply go hide in the garden. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told, when Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, who is it that you're seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words that he had said. I have not lost one of those you have given me. Notice that Jesus didn't wait for this mob to come into the garden. He didn't wait for them to show up, to get there. When, as they were coming, verse 4 says that he went out to them because he wasn't surprised by their arrival. He wasn't, he wasn't caught off guard. He knew everything that was about to happen to him. He just spent all this time with the disciples telling them these things. It was the soldiers and the officials who were caught off guard. They didn't know what to do with Jesus' boldness. At least some of these Jewish officials would have been the same ones that the chief priests and Pharisees sent to arrest Jesus back in chapter 7. And there, they came back to the Pharisees and chief priests empty-handed because they were dumbfounded by the authority with which Jesus spoke. They didn't know what to do with him. Here, his boldness and his authority literally made them stagger. It was literally staggering to them as they stepped back and they fell to the ground. Not only were they taken aback by his fearlessness, but surely some of the Jews in this mob would have heard the divine undertones when he spoke the words, I am he, or to translate literally from the Greek, I am. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am. I am. We're familiar with this phrase by now in John's gospel, aren't we? John has made it clear to us over and over that those words are closely connected to Jesus' identity as the Son of God, as God the Son, and his unity with God the Father. He's claiming equality with God. This man is not just from Nazareth. Everything about this scene reveals that Jesus was in complete control. We need to understand this. Things were not falling apart around him. Jesus was holding everything together. He was keeping it all together as the good shepherd, John chapter 10, who came to lay down his life for his sheep. He was protecting them even as he went out to meet this mob who would carry him off to his own death. If you're looking for me, 
let these men go. You don't need them, you need me. I'm the one you came for. Jesus was fulfilling his own words, his own promise that he would not lose any one of those that the Father had given to him. Why? John 10, I hold them in my hand and no one can snatch them out. No one can snatch them out. But there was still at least one of his sheep who thought that it was Jesus who needed protection. Anybody got a guess who that is? Let's keep reading. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, there's a shocker, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. The servant's name was Malchus. At that, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Now at first, it might seem like bravery on Peter's part, but I think we know Peter better well enough by now, right? And and Jesus here is quick to point out the foolishness of what Peter had just done. The sword was probably a Roman dagger, which was easy to conceal. And Peter was a fisherman, right? Not a soldier. I'm sure that he was great at filleting fish, but we shouldn't be so quick to to assume his precision in in his wielding of this dagger. Swinging it at, at Malchus here, which by the way, John identifies Malchus to help us understand that this isn't made up. This is a real person. This really happened. It's most likely that Peter aimed to kill Malchus, and he cut his ear off instead. I found one pastor's observation to be really helpful here again. Notice that Jesus' objection to Peter wasn't tactical, right? It wasn't like, Peter, what are you doing? We're outnumbered, right? Like, like wait for your opportunity, Peter. No, it wasn't tactical. Jesus' objection was theological, Peter, what are you doing? This is not the plan. There's a big difference between those two objections. Peter was trying to stop these men from exerting their will over Jesus, but in doing so, you know what Peter was doing? He was actually attempting to exert his own will over Jesus. You ever been there? He failed he failed to realize that Jesus was willingly subjecting himself to to Judas's betrayal. Jesus went out to meet them knowing full well that he would be tied up and taken away with them. He didn't go out to meet them to shut them down and send them away. Peter failed to realize this. He failed to realize that Jesus was willingly subjecting himself to Judas's betrayal because Jesus was willingly subjecting himself not to these men's will, not to Peter's will, but to the Father's will. Peter, this isn't the plan. You have no idea what the plan is, but I'm going to show you. Put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Now, it's important for us to understand that this cup is not simply the cup of death. If we ask people what Jesus came to do, uh, I, I think most people would say, at least to some degree, he came to die, maybe to die for our sins. But what does that even mean? This is not just the cup of death. 
Yes, Jesus came to die, but his death did not remove death's power over us. His resurrection did that. So why did Jesus die? The cup that he was talking about is the cup of God's righteous wrath that was poured out against unrighteous sinners. It's the cup that we are all condemned to drink because of our own sinful rebellion against God. But Jesus came to die on the cross under that wrath in order to remove the guilt of our sin and to reconcile us to God forever. He drank that cup down to the very last drop so that we could taste forgiveness and freedom, so that we then could drink God's grace from a cup that never runs dry. You know why? We saw, we saw it in Ephesians 2. So that in the coming days, God might display his immeasurable riches of grace through his son. Immeasurable. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him and he met it head on because that's what the father had sent him to do. Betrayal would not thwart God's plan of redemption because betrayal was in God's good design part of that plan. And Peter was about to realize just how much he was in need of the Father's plan to succeed. Let's keep going. Verse 12. Then the company, uh, the company of soldiers, the commander, Roman commander of the soldiers, and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. First they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year. Caiaphas was one of the one who had, had advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Now, um, they took Jesus into Jerusalem under the cover of night to be questioned by the high priest. Again, all this secret, secretive stuff, right? And things can get a little confusing here because both Annas and Caiaphas are called the high priest in this passage, but the office of high priest was only uh, uh, occupied by one person at a time. Annas was removed from that office by Roman officials, and then Caiaphas was appointed to that office by Roman officials. And so uh, uh, several uh, or many of the Jews didn't actually uh, um, uh, uh, believe that, 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 what am I trying to say? They didn't, they didn't recognize, thank you, where was that? Where did they come from? They didn't recognize uh, the, the, this transition. A lot of them saw Annas as the, the main high priest still. And so, um, but, but nonetheless, the Roman officials, Caiaphas was officially the high priest. And so uh, Annas was also a patriarch of the high priestly family. Um, he, was, he was a high priest. Caiaphas, his son-in-law, was a high priest. Several of his other sons were high priests. And so as that patriarch, he garnered a great deal of respect, which was probably why the Jewish officials led, him, or led Jesus to, to Annas first. But John reminds his readers of the foreshadowing words that Caiaphas spoke back in chapter 11, words that had more meaning than even Caiaphas realized when he spoke them, words that would soon be fulfilled, right? It's better for one man to die than for the whole nation. Let's keep going. Verse 15. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance of the high priest, so, when, so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one who, known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. 
Then the servant girl who was the doorkeeper said to Peter, You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. It gets cold at night. They were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them, warming himself. Now before we get to hear Annas question Jesus, the scene cuts from Annas' house to outside in the courtyard of the high priest, where we see that Peter and another disciple uh, had been following behind as the mob brought Jesus into Jerusalem. The other disciple isn't named, but it's most likely John himself, who never actually names himself specifically in his gospel. We're told that John has some, uh, has some relational connections to the high priest, but we're not given the details of how they know each other. He's a fisherman, fisherman and high priest. Uh, who knows, right? And yet, he used that to his, his advantage. But I think it's, it's worth pointing out here that John calls himself only an acquaintance of the high priest. He was known by the high priest, but elsewhere in John's gospel, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Not because John thought that he was Jesus' favorite, but because he wrote this gospel some 60 plus years later after the fact and in spirit-filled hindsight recognized his own unworthiness for the grace that he has received. John's looking back at all that Jesus has done and he goes, that man, that God has loved me. That's grace. John also recognized that that's grace that Peter would be just as undeserving to receive. It was John's connection to the high priest that enabled him to get Peter into the courtyard. But it seems as though John in this moment wasn't afraid to let his connection with Jesus be known either, at least not to the, or at least to the uh, servant girl who was the doorkeeper, because she asked Peter if he was one of Jesus' disciples too, right? Also, meaning she knows somebody else is. And what was Peter's answer? I am not. I am not. And those three little words stand in such sharp contrast to Jesus' direct and fearless response to the mob in the garden. I am he. Who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he. Aren't you one of his disciples too? I am not. I am not. And right after Peter's denial, John notes in verse 18 that Peter was standing with them, warming himself by the charcoal, file, uh, charcoal fire. But who is them that he's talking about? It's the servants and the officials, at least some of whom had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane to, to arrest Jesus. Now look back at verse 5 for a moment. John notes there that Judas was the one who betrayed Jesus, but what does he say Judas was doing in that verse? You find it? He was standing with them. He was standing with them. As John retells this account, he's deliberate in his word choice. He used the same phrase for Judas and for Peter to show that Peter's denial of Jesus was just as sinful and rebellious as Judas's betrayal. We all love to hate the bad guy. And we think the bad guy is Judas. And we might rag on Peter we know he's one of Jesus' disciples. His denial was just as sinful, just as rebellious as Judas' betrayal. By denying that he was one of Jesus' disciples, 
John tells us that Peter was standing on the side of the opposition. John then leaves us in the tension of this first denial and cuts back to the scene with Jesus and Annas. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. The high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus answered him. I've always taught in the synagogue and in the temple where all the Jews gather. I haven't spoken anything in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who heard that I, what I told them. Look, they know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus, saying, is this the way you answer the high priest? If I've spoken wrongly, Jesus answered him, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Again, Jesus' fearless response to the high priest stands in contrast to to. to Peter's fearful attempt to remain anonymous to a young servant girl. You see the irony here? Jesus is standing up to the highest authority, and and Peter, who tried to cut off or kill a, a soldier, is bested by a little girl. But Jesus' responses here also expose the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. With very few exceptions, Jewish court hearings at nighttime were illegal. That may have been why they sent Jesus to Annas in the first place so that he could question Jesus uh, sort of off the record to try to to build a case against him before sending him then to to Caiaphas. And as the officially named and recognized high priest, Caiaphas was the leader of the Jewish high court, the Sanhedrin, and he was the one who would need to bring official charges against Jesus to the Roman governor Pilate, which we'll see when we get to uh, next week. Annas questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching, but it, wasn't, but it was against Jewish legal procedure to question the defendant directly. Annas should have questioned witnesses instead, and to follow procedure, he should have listened to witness testimony for the defendant instead of, and before he listened to witness testimony against Jesus. Annas broke protocol left and right, And it seems that Jesus was alluding to that in his response in verses 20 and 21. Why do you question me? There's plenty of people who can vouch. Jesus made it clear. Another procedure was that that you needed two witnesses, at least two witnesses to validate a testimony. Jesus like, listen, I've, I've spoken openly in the temple. There's plenty of people. I'm sure you can find at least two. But instead of recognizing their own hypocrisy and letting Jesus go, one of the nearby officials, listen, slapped God in the face. Slapped God in the face. He brashly asked, is that the way you answer the high priest? While he remained completely oblivious to the way he just treated the one who created him. No evidence of wrongdoing could be given against Jesus because Jesus never did anything wrong. But John reveals so much evidence here of wrongdoing against these Jewish leaders. Jesus was asking for a fair trial here, but nobody would give him one. But their hypocrisy would not thwart God's plan of redemption because their hypocrisy in God's good and wise design was part of that plan. 
And Peter is about to become painfully aware of his own hypocrisy. Look at these last verses. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. And they said to him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, said, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Peter denied it again. And immediately the rooster crowed. Now the scene cuts back to the charcoal fire where Peter was standing with the officials who arrested Jesus. And as he continued to warm himself, Peter grew colder and colder toward Christ. Someone standing around the fire asked him the same question that the servant girl did at the door in the courtyard. And Peter's second denial came just as quickly and easily as his first one did. Nope, I'm not. It's not me. But when you cut a man's ear off, even in the dark, it's hard for you to go unnoticed right? And so Malchus's cousin or, or relative uh, uh, called Peter out on being there like, hey, I'm pretty sure I saw you in the garden with Jesus, right? And Peter denied it again, and immediately the rooster crowed. And at the sound of the rooster, surely Peter's mind was immediately drawn back to the upper room where he had fearlessly pledged his allegiance to Jesus and said he would even lay down his own life for Jesus. You know what Peter was doing by denying these three times? He was trying to save his own life. The words of our Lord must have echoed in Peter's ears even more piercingly than that rooster's crow. Will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, I tell you, a rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. Jesus knows. Peter had done exactly what Jesus said he would do. But Jesus said that Peter would do that thing because Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. There was no surprise around the corner for Jesus. He knew about Judas's betrayal. He knew about Peter's denial. He knew about the Jewish leader's hypocrisy. And he knew about all of these things because he came from the Father and he knew the Father's plan. And in the Father's good and infinite wisdom, in his sovereign and glorious power, he chose to take every sinful action that threatened to thwart his plan of redemption and turn it and use that to actually bring about this plan to fruition, to completion. And that's because his plan of redemption involves sending his one and only son, his one and only sinless son to bear the guilt of sinners and to bear the wrath of God on the cross. Jesus died at the wicked hands of sinners in order to bring sinners safely into the righteous hands of God. Jesus didn't deny anything that was true about himself in this passage. This is the great contrast here. He's totally honest about it all. Peter denied everything that was true about him in this passage. He denied the one who is the truth. But we need to understand this, although we're not looking at this part today. Peter's denial of Jesus is not the end of Peter's story. I love what one study Bible had to say about this. It said, even as the rooster was crowing, Jesus was still loving Peter to the end. 
Our sins do not separate us from the love of Jesus. Jesus separates us from the love of our sin and from sin's guilt and sin's power. Whenever John mentions Judas in his gospel, do you notice how he refers to him? Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Do you notice, though, what what John never calls Peter in this passage? He never refers to him as Peter, the one who denied Jesus. Is that not grace? Is that not grace? Back in chapter 13, Jesus said that Peter and the other disciples were already clean because of the words Jesus had spoken to them. Jesus' cleansing words there gave Peter an identity that Peter's shameful words here could never erase or undo. Jesus also said that not all of the disciples were clean. And he was referring to Judas, who was going to betray him. Judas was a betrayer. He was a liar. Jesus himself called Judas the son of destruction in chapter 17. But Jesus called Peter one whom the Father had given to him. John didn't refer to Peter as the one who denied Christ because he understood that Peter also was a disciple whom Jesus loved. And at the beginning of John chapter 13, John told us that Jesus loved his disciples to the end. To the end. You see, Jesus' steadfast love for Peter did not diminish the seriousness of Peter's denial of Jesus. Jesus isn't just flippantly throwing that off like, it's no big deal, Peter. But he told him ahead of time, you're going to deny me. But you know what? I won't deny you. Peter sinned against his creator and his Lord, and it took Jesus' death on the cross to pay the debt of Peter's sin and cover Peter's guilt. But we'll also see Jesus restore Peter in chapter 21 after Jesus has risen from the dead. He accomplished the plan of redemption for Peter on the cross. He removed Peter's guilt. He took Peter's blame for the three denials and for every other sin that Peter would ever commit. Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath that was reserved for Peter. And because of that, listen, the rooster's crow is no longer a reminder of Peter's guilt. It's an echo of God's grace. The rooster's crowed for every one of us, exposing our guilt, exposing our need for that grace that only Jesus Christ can provide. But our sin cannot separate us from the love of Jesus. Our sin cannot thwart God's plan of redemption because Jesus already went to the cross. And he already purchased our forgiveness. And we who have put our trust in Christ have been made clean through his life and death and resurrection. That means, listen, not even our most shameful sins can undo the work that Jesus has done. He accomplished redemption. He accomplished redemption for us on the cross. He removed our guilt. He took our blame for every sin that we've ever committed and every sin that we will ever commit. Jesus drank the cup of wrath that had our name on it that was reserved for us. And because of that, we can now look back on the sins that we've committed and hear echoes of grace instead of guilt. Our sins have not separated us and they cannot separate us from the love of Jesus. Jesus separates us from the love of our sin 
and from sin's guilt and power. And so if you put your trust in Christ, but you're carrying around the burden of shame and guilt for something that you've done, listen, look to Jesus. Remember the cross. Remember the resurrection. Remember the steadfast, immovable, unfailing love of Jesus Christ and rest in his grace today. You're no longer defined by what you have done. You are defined by what Christ has done. He's the savior of sinners. And because we're all sinners, he's the savior that we all need. There's nobody else. Nobody else that can do what he's done. Nobody else that has done what he's done. Nothing else that can do or will ever do what Jesus has accomplished. Only he came and lived as the perfect sinless human being. Only he died as the perfect sacrifice for sin. Only his resurrection secures eternal life for all who believe in him. Is he your savior? Do you believe in him? If not, you won't find anything else or anyone else that can do what he's done. So why not believe in him? Confess your sin and your need for forgiveness and trust that Jesus has done everything that you need in order to be forgiven. You see, there is no sin that can thwart God's plan of redemption. Why? Because God sent his sinless son to redeem sinners. Jesus was committed to the Father's plan and he was faithful to accomplish the redeeming work that the Father had sent him to do in the midst of betrayal and denial and hypocrisy, just to name a few. Jesus remained steadfast. If we really knew how much he loved us, we would never doubt or fear at all. But we're prone to wander off the path, right? Because we forget so quickly the grace that we've been given so freely. Praise God then that our failures never cause our Savior to falter. Praise God then that Christ faithfully stayed the course on our behalf and he will faithfully lead us to the celestial city. And he'll do that in the end because our redemption has been planned from the beginning by our good and gracious Father. Let's pray. Father, we love you so much. And we confess, Lord, even this morning we've wandered so many times. We confess yet again our need for this grace that you so freely have provided for us in Jesus. And we pray, Lord, by your spirit, through your word, together as your church, you would fill our hearts with joy instead of guilt. You would remind us of your grace that was poured out because your wrath was poured out on your son in our place. We pray, Lord, that you would help us, keep us from wandering, fix our eyes on Jesus, remind us that he never leaves us nor forsakes us, that his love for us is steadfast, immovable, unchanging, and help us continue to grow in our confidence in him and our dependence upon him as we continue on this pilgrim's journey. Looking forward to the, to the day that Christ welcomes us home.
We pray this in his great and gracious name. Amen.